You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, Episode 71. Today, we're sitting down with landscape photographer and fellow podcaster David Johnston to chat about being a content creator, infusing emotions into your photography, creative flow, and so much more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Outdoor Photography School Digest, which is the newsletter that I send out on the last Friday of the month that contains a summary of all new OPS content like this podcast, for example, and other tips and resources that I think will help you on your photography journey, whether that's any courses or workshops that I may offer through OPS or from other resources like some of our guests. I also include a featured photographer whose work I think you would enjoy learning about, And I share any photography or outdoor industry offers or deals that may also help you out. I call the OPS Digest your monthly dose of outdoor photography information and inspiration. And if that sounds like something that you would enjoy reading, you can sign up for free through the link in the episode description. Hello, my friend, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. Thanks so much for tuning in and sharing a little part of your day with me today. Today, I'm joined by Tennessee-based landscape photographer, educator, and fellow podcaster, David Johnston. David recently interviewed me on his podcast, The Landscape Photography Show, which I'll link to in the show notes if you would like to listen to it. I then had the pleasure of turning the tables and having him as a guest here so that he could share his stories and perspectives with you. So let me give you a little background on David before we roll the interview. David Johnston started his journey into photography back in 2004 when he took a film photography course in high school. However, it wasn't until 2010 that he really became obsessed with photography after he got his first DSLR camera. At that point, he decided to put all of his energy into photography and make it his career. In 2014, he started his first blog and podcast called The Photography Roundtable, where he met some of his best photography friends and enabled him to teach and run photography workshops at national parks throughout the United States. He now hosts a second podcast called The Landscape Photography Show. David also helps people improve their nature photography with video content on YouTube, as well as through post-processing courses and video tutorials. And so without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with David Johnston. David, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. No, thank you so much. I love coming on other people's podcasts and and talking with them about their photography. And it's it's weird, honestly, being on the other side of things for me. Um, yeah. But I know you probably feel the same about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so I've already given your bio in the introduction. But for folks who are not yet familiar with you or the work that you do, I was wondering if you could take us back in time a little bit. Tell us more about your origin story. So you know, where are you from and what were you doing before you decided to go full time into photography? 
Yeah, so I am from Tennessee. I've lived in all three phases of Tennessee, West, Middle, and East, um, and just love the state so much. I actually picked up a camera in high school for the first time when I was doing a film class, and it was funny. I did the film photography class to get out of a prerequisite of geography because I found <laughs> oh, a loophole. I found a loophole in our system um, that would allow me to take an extra elective and do that. And lo and behold, I, I majored in geography in college. So that kind of screwed <laughs> me in the end um, and then used photography as, as a profession later on. But I graduated and I got out of school and I was using uh, my degree in geography doing uh, computer science mapping and, and GIS mapping. I know oh, a lot neat. of geographers and geog geographers and cartographers yeah. know that uh, and geologists too use that. And I just was really unfulfilled. And I know a lot of people probably listening have that feeling of maybe you go to work, you go to your nine to five. For me, it was seven to four thirty, and you just grind it out every day. And I was at a desk all day, and that just wasn't me. It wasn't a fit. And I really picked up a camera when I got a digital one and got serious about it in 2010, and just couldn't stop learning. I, I couldn't stop absorbing it and and trying to figure out what got got me better. And that was the hardest part about it for me was trying to get better in that sense, because I couldn't figure out why my images weren't the way I wanted them to be. And then it all just kind of clicked for me when I was like, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to talk to my favorite photographers about why they take the photos that they do. And when I did, it all started making sense. And I got this access to them like never before. And they just were so generous with their information and gave out value in the podcast. And um, that that was kind of where I started and where I kind of started to figure out this is what a good composition is. This is why you place the subject in this and complementary subjects around it and how the visual flow of an image goes. Um, and, and that's kind of where I, I cut my teeth early on and how I started uh, was just a podcast like this one and asking people the questions that I had seen posted on other YouTube comments and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. I just asked them those questions. And so that's not the same podcast that you have going right now. Is that correct? This is a, you've started a new one called the Landscape Photography Show. So what led you to decide to start a second podcast? The old one kind of ran its course. Uh, I don't think I was very well versed in creating that form of listening content. And I don't think I was really polished as an interviewer. Uh, and, and it kind of ran its course in that I was asking the same questions. I had repeat guests on, not really exploring other options of who to have on. And I was kind of floundering, um, to be honest. And, and I stopped doing it when, when I was living in Haiti, I, I recorded a few episodes there. And then I was like, you know what? This just isn't really working for me anymore. Uh, I'm going to put a pause on it and maybe I'll come back to it or maybe I'll try a new one. But it's just it's not making me happy anymore. And I've yeah. always kind of spoken to I'm just going to do what makes me happy and what I enjoy doing. And since that wasn't adding that to my life, uh, I, I decided to stop doing it and, and picked up 
the landscape photography show when um, I really got into kind of the same thing a lot of people do with photography in that I studied my favorite interviewers and why they asked the questions they did. And, and one of the biggest influences on the podcast and how I do it and how I ask questions is a sports um, radio host, Dan Patrick. Oh, and he, he always gave the, the information, the, the lesson, whatever you're going to ask, cut it in half and then cut it in half again. And oh, that's kind of what I've lived by. And he yeah. always says, you know, in follow up questions, just say like one word questions like why, how, who, where, what? Um, and I always I took that and, and put it into the new podcast and then got feedback from other photographers on what they wanted to hear from from the community of photographers, too. Mm-hmm. And it kind of evolved from people who were able to be vulnerable with their answers and share like these deep emotional stories behind the images that they were creating and, and personal experiences. And, you know, that's on them. That that's a hundred percent them for doing that. All I did was show up and ask the question and they were able to provide so much value to the listeners. Uh, and that's why I love this new podcast so much is I think it's way more, deep than the other one was, mm-hmm. if that makes sense to you. Yeah, totally. It sounds like by asking questions like that, you you have created space for the guests to elaborate more on what they want to share. Yeah, totally. And and I I have no agenda when I do a podcast episode. I don't come I'm I tell people who come on, I'm the most underprepared person to do a podcast ever. I have no questions prepared. I'm just like, let's just talk and and see where this goes. And it's scary to do that, honestly, yeah. but it always provides something unexpected. And yeah. even for me listening on and asking questions, that's what I want out of a show. Yeah. Have you ever had to sort of trash a conversation because it just didn't go very well? <laughs> one. Yeah. Oh, well, I did that's one good. time. Yeah. 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 So one one out of, I think we're up to 130 now. You know, that's not bad odds. No, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. So what are some unexpected things that you've learned about photography through these conversations over the years? Definitely the emotional side of it. The the amount of emotion that photographers are able to put into their images that you can't see through a social media post. You can read about it all you want, but to hear them talk about it and to even hear people have to take extensive pauses while they're explaining the story behind their photos and hearing the, the, like how raw it is to them is so compelling to me. And it just brings their story to life a little bit more. You know, people who come to mind are like, uh, Ryan Dyer talking about addiction and how that got behind his photography, uh, Aaron Babnick talking about the, the California wildfires, um, and how that affected her creatively. It was a great episode. Uh, Let's see. It, um, Dave, David Thompson talking about uh, this was right after George Floyd had just been murdered. And he talked about how that impacted him as a black photographer. Mm-hmm. And and just to hear unexpected stories behind those things it is why I love doing it now. 
versus why the old one got stale. Mm-hmm. And it's it for me, it was all about giving them that space, like you said, to allow them to answer in their own way and allow them to fill in the blanks, which was totally out of the realm of expectation for me and, and let it in a completely different direction. Um, so again, it, it's all about the guest vulnerability for me is, is why I love that so much and, and why it's so unexpected for me. Yeah. And has it helped you elicit more emotion in your own as you approach your own photography? Yeah, I, I definitely think running a podcast is it's good and bad in that sense when it comes to your own photography. Because if I come off of an episode like that, and I've had to learn this, if I come off of an episode that's really raw, really emotional, sometimes I'll go out and I'll try to like force my own experiences into a photo rather than just feeling what I'm feeling in the moment. And that never works out well. Uh, it's, it's something that I continually try to fight against doing, um, but it's something that I continually do. Yeah. And I, I just have to like, remember the podcast is the podcast and their answers are their story. My photography is my story and it doesn't, while, while they may still be the same emotions, they don't correlate or cross over into another person's story. Mm-hmm. So we can relate on that emotion, but we can't take what they've learned from their life and, and force it into an image that I'm working on in the moment. So I've had to learn not to do that, which is kind of a detriment to me, but a positive and, and something that I've been able to add to my photography is definitely the ability to kind of know what these emotions are and how to add mood and emotion to a photo, which I think is, is one of the biggest problems that f- people face when they're, you know, on a workshop or in one of these big conventions where you go for a week and, and you stay and you shoot. The question is always, you know, well, how, how do I do that? How do I add that? And I'm, I think there needs to be a better answer for that in terms of, well, just let the photo come to you. That doesn't make sense to, it doesn't even make sense to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. So I'm from that. And from what I've learned from the podcast, I'm kind of on a mission to help people relate emotion to their imagery and constructed composition out of it. Um, and, and, it's been a learning process for me and doing that in my own photography, like I was just talking about. So, so what that big question, how, like, what are, what are some of the ways that you're finding is effective for, to try to elicit a certain type of mood or emotion that you're experiencing in your photograph? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, for me, it, it comes down to steps when you're preparing to go shoot mm. and also when you're out in the field. Um, and I call this creative flow induction. My wife is a midwife, so she's always talking about like her patients getting induced and all mm-hmm. this. And I kind of stole that word from her. And I was like, well, what if I can induce emotional flow, creative flow out of my own experiences? Mm. So the first thing I do is I drive to a location or I plan on a location in complete dead silence. No music, no podcasts, 
Um, no talk radio, sports radio, anything like that. Just dead silence. And it gives me, especially we're driving to places that are an hour plus away, usually from our home, if we're going somewhere locally. And it gives me that space to just think about everything that is in my mind and get it out. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of reach this like even keel numbness of no thought going on really in my mind. And I'm just driving to the place when I'm out in the field. And that's, that's pre shooting when I'm out in the field, the second part of flow induction is being able to know what physical senses are going on in me. So that's sight, smell, sound, taste, touch, um, see, what am I seeing? And going through all of those when I'm in the field, and a lot of people will, will notice that those are mindfulness practices. So I do that when I'm in the field, when I'm going to shoot. Um, and then once I do those things, I kind of just sit and say, what am I feeling emotionally right now? And construct a composition out of it, take the photo, and pull that emotion into post-processing. So I process my images really quickly after I shoot them so I can stay attached to that emotion and I can add, you know, darker tones. I can add warmer tones. We can do a lot of things in post-processing, especially really quickly in Lightroom that amplify that emotion that you're feeling in the field. Mm -hmm. And it helps bring that to light a little bit more. So it sounds like through your flow induction process, you are basically preparing your mind to be receptive to the environment so that you can be responsive to whatever the environment might be triggering in you emotionally. Do you ever find that, you know, if you have something going on in your life, that that emotion comes out in the type of compositions you end up finding sort of the other way, like you're, if you're in a down mood or if you're in a bright mood or you know, that that may lead you to create a certain type of composition versus uh, just responding to the landscape? It can definitely be serendipitous at times, for sure. Uh, One one time comes to mind of when we lived in Haiti, we we brought this girl back who we took through many tests. She had uh, this just really, really bizarre virus that had infected her and she was in a wheelchair. She was about 14 years old. Um, and we were coming, trying to figure out what was wrong. If she get any help, any medication. And we, we figured out what it was, but it was basically like, this is so bizarre and rare that at this point, there's really nothing you can do. So the virus takes its course. Um, and one day I was out shooting And my wife texted me and said, uh, Sarah has died uh, today. And I kind of just sat with that in the field and I was photographing ferns. I know you photograph ferns a lot. So I was out there shooting ferns and trying to just deal with that and, and experience that. And what I noticed in the ferns was that it was really hot and dry that summer. So the bottom of the fern was really lush and green. And then the top was this brown crispy uh fern frond that had kind of curled up and and it was this this play on like early life from the root and then kind of dying off at the end of life or cut too short you know yeah and i played with that a lot and those photos 
they weren't any good. Like they weren't, they weren't something that was like, oh, you know, I could sell 50 prints of this, but they mean a lot to me because mm-hmm. of that experience in the field and playing around with that story and and using photography as a form of art therapy mm-hmm. to help me deal with that and experience that emotion not to distract myself from it but fully just like dive into it experience it sit with it and then express it in a creative way yeah no i love that story thank you for sharing that so shifting gears just a little bit, besides the the podcast, you also have a YouTube channel where you share photography vlogs and tutorials. And so I'm curious, what made you decide to start a YouTube channel and in what ways has it had a positive impact on your photography business? So the YouTube channel has really helped me in, in terms of getting a deeper connection with the people who watch the videos and the people who I see at like a, con- a photography convention or a workshop they'll say, I love this vlog or I love this tutorial. It really helped me in this way. Or I thought, you know, it was creative when you did this. And and this is how I took it and put it on a spin on my own photography. And that's the most rewarding for me is to hear people talk about that and be able to uh, add it to their own repertoire, I guess I should say, uh, of what they're able to do with their photography. And I think what what it's done for me is it's really helped me be able to speak and not be like afraid to get in front of a camera or talk to camera clubs or talk at a workshop or at a convention. I absolutely love public speaking now. It is one of my favorite things to do. And I think, yeah, I think YouTube has really helped me do that because you're seeing yourself on camera while you're doing it. And you're also going back through and you're editing everything that you've said. And you have Mm -hmm. a tendency to just pick out all the things like, oh, that's kind of cringe right there. I don't know if I should do that. Um, Right. (laughs) Or I say this word a lot or I do this a lot with my hands. So early videos are bad and you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Well, you should go and watch them because that does help my channel. But don't pay attention to those so much as the later ones. Um, Don't judge those. (laughs) Yeah, don't judge them. Take the information and add it, but uh, watch the later ones too. Uh, Yeah. I think it for me, it's just business-wise, it does give me a little in terms of like ad revenue and stuff like that. But more importantly, it helps me know the people who are watching and get to know them and their photography. Cause I make, I make a lot of videos off of what they say and what they comment on the videos. Like, right. it's cool yeah. how you did this. How do you do this? And I'm like, well, there's another video. I'll do this now. Right. Um, so, so that's been huge for me and really helpful, but I think a lot of it is just the connections and, and the public speaking part of it too. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of photographers who are, you know, they like the idea of starting a YouTube channel because they think it would help grow their audience or, you know, expand their reach, which makes a lot of sense being that YouTube's the second largest search engine and that sort of thing. But they feel really intimidated about either getting behind the camera or dealing with the trolls that are out there. And so were those ever obstacles for you? And, and if so, how, do, how have you overcome them? It sounds like with being behind the camera, it was just doing it and, and 
sort of getting past the discomfort of doing so. Yeah, the camera doesn't bother me anymore. It's the part about the camera that does bother me is when I'm in the field and it's a pretty crowded place and I'm like videoing yeah. myself trying to explain what I'm doing <laughs> and people are just yeah. watching me. Um like I was in the Outer Banks one time videoing this sunset and it was happening really fast. So I was like screaming and running around and this guy, <laughs> this guy just walked up and like arms folded, kind of leaned back on one leg, just like watched the whole thing. And then when I hit stop, he was like, that was cool. And I was like, yeah, thanks for making me really nervous. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, I, I think for... Like in terms of the trolls, I, I think it comes for, for me, it's like, I don't pay attention to them much and I don't interact with them much, but when you approach it with like being kind of empathetic with them about wh why they are doing that is mm -hmm. really important because then it kind of puts yourself in their shoes. Cause if you're, if you're going through and actually watching someone's entire video, which thank you, by the way, for watching my entire video <laughs> and then commenting something negative, that yeah. number one, that helps me because you're helping my channel, but also like you're spending a lot of time just to spread that hate. And that's kind of sad. So I yeah. go into it with that mindset and see that coming. And usually if you do interact with them, 60 seconds in it turns into a pretty positive interaction and a lot of times oh, if you do go back and forth especially in dms um they'll often kind of apologize and be like look i'm i'm sorry this is what i'm going through and, and kind of you get to connect on that level uh that's probably 60 percent of the time it happens like that 40 percent, they're just angry and you're just like all right whatever dude um but i i would say like this this isn't high school anymore. You don't have to worry about them. You don't have to worry about what they think about your photography videos. It's really comes down to haters math and, and haters math. It, I heard this story told about Larry David. I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. Um, mm -hmm. And he was at a New York Yankees game and they put his face up on the screen. He's like a legend in New York. And the whole stadium cheered, like standing ovation for Larry David. And then he's riding home in his car on the his driver takes him home on the way. And he's waiting at like a stoplight or a red light. And this guy taps on the window and he rolls the window down. And the guy says, hey, Larry, you suck. And that's all he thought about from the entire experience. He has one guy telling yeah. him he sucks but an entire stadium of probably 30,000 people was cheering for him. So you have to take that into effect when you're getting down about somebody hating on your video. There are so many others who are not, who love what you're doing, who are getting value out of it. So do it for the people who are applauding you and not for the one person who tells you you suck. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's such good advice. And and it's hard, you know, and it's so weird that we do that, that we are so it's so easy for us to focus on the negative 
mm. even in mountains of positivity. Yeah. Um, it's it's like just how we're wired, I guess, you know, and, and it's too bad. And it is an exercise to learn how to ignore that or to let it go and just focus on the people who you actually are serving by providing good value and, and who appreciate the work that you're doing. I think, well, I think fear comes into it a lot because you're already afraid to put that out there. And then one person says something negative about it and and you just start it. Their negativity validates the negativity in your head and you can't let that right. happen yeah. uh, because you're yeah. already afraid of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. So do you have any advice or resources that you would recommend for someone who wants to start a YouTube channel? You know, like where to begin? How did you how did you sort of learn how to do YouTube? Uh, I learned a lot from a guy named Sean Cannell, and he has a channel called Think Media. Um, mm-hmm. I would definitely promote his channel for any photographers who want to get started. He especially does a lot with camera reviews and teaches you how to edit really quickly. And they're just really concise. They help solve a problem, just really high quality, concise, effective videos. So I would definitely say he is somebody to look to when you do want to start a YouTube channel. He would probably be my number yeah. one. If, if you are um, working on like getting comfortable in front of the camera, I would definitely just Google like people who are speech coaches and, and not like, I don't know about buying their courses or anything like that, but kind of like how I did with Dan Patrick's advice. I just listened to him so much. It kind of rubbed off on me and I have the same interview style that he does. So find people you want to emulate and then put your own spin on it as well in, in YouTube, but do it in a way that's not that's not not you if i can use double negative Mm. to prove my point you have to be yourself in in that sense and then once you're getting involved in youtube and you're you're really starting to create videos that you like don't delete your early videos just let them ride and follow that momentum into more concise videos and always remember you have to make videos that number one solve a problem. And then you have to make videos that help that person like rise to a new level. So they have to Mm -hmm. solve the question that they're searching. And then they have to help them improve as a photographer. If you're doing a photography channel, Um, those would be kind of my get started points and and now go get them, start your own channel. And, And I would say lastly, my last point of advice is it's not too late. It, YouTube is not too saturated in photography. If you look at the entire community of photographers, there's only a really a handful who have really successful YouTube channels and the rest of us who start YouTube and, you know, we just want to help people. So it's not too late to start your channel. There's really only a small handful of people who are consistently doing it. And there's room for a lot more. Like we can all grow together and we can all start our own channels. Yeah, I love that advice to, to, you know, not feel like it's a saturated place already. Um, Do you Mm -hmm. find that consistency is really important? You know, a lot of people who are in social media marketing and that sort of thing are saying like, oh, you have to post X number of times per week or per month or whatever to really see growth of your channel. Have you found that to be true? I do. I do. Um, But I think you need to do it in a smart way. Like 
at first I was posting three videos a week and that's Whoa. exhausting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and a lot of times, honestly, there might be one like good video, but there were a lot of not so great videos mixed in there. So I kind of pulled back and said, well, I'll do one a week and I'll mix in some interviews here and there and I'll mix in some reviews and quick editing tutorials and do one video a week, make it really, really good. And that way I'm not rushing to get videos out that I'm not necessarily super proud of. Um, so do, do videos in a way that you can actually do them well uh, and don't kind of just over commit at the very beginning, which is something that I like, that's a habitual problem for me. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I have definitely gotten burnt out a couple of times on YouTube just because I couldn't keep up with a pace of trying to be super consistent. And I'm on currently on a hiatus right now with, I don't know when I will return. Hopefully it's not a matter of if it's just a matter of when, but, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, how I can fit it in schedule wise is, has been a challenge. So speaking of that, I'm curious, I, I understand that you have a young daughter at home mm -hmm. and I do too. My, I, my daughter's three and a half. And so I'm curious, how do you balance that all, all the content creating you're, you're making, you know, weekly YouTube videos, you have a podcast, you have a family with a young kid who I understand how much work that is. So how are you fitting that all in and are you able to carve out time for your own scratching your own creative itch? Yes. Now, uh, I've learned how to do it. So a lot of what I do, I, I only work two days a week, which wow. I keep my daughter the other days. Mm -hmm. So I cram everything in from 7am to 5pm on Mondays and Wednesdays. And I run ragged on those days, just trying to get everything within the right amount of time to do so. And the way I create content now, I, I used to be really just like crazy with content and um, not get everything done on time and, and fall behind on things. But I figured out that especially now with so much reliance for photographers who want to build their business on social media mm -hmm. that you have to push out so much content. I was like, there's no feasible way that I can do this the way I'm doing it. So I thought, how can I create content that I'm still there? I'm still in front of people and I'm still active, uh, but I'm not killing myself to do it. So I'll take a podcast, like I'm recording this podcast right now on my own camera and I'll chop it up into like little Instagram reels. Some of my answers I'll use as Instagram reels and that'll be a piece of content or mm -hmm. I'll use all my old YouTube videos. I'll just download those, take out a little lesson from those, make those a short on YouTube. So I'm taking one big long form piece of content and using it as content like a podcast and then I'm chopping that up into little pieces of content. So five to 10 pieces of content per long form mm -hmm. that I'm able to push on social media, uh, Instagram. And that way I'm not, I I'm basically killing 
10 birds with one stone instead of doing a podcast, then I'm like, okay, well now I have to make an Instagram post. Well, okay. Now I have to go and make a YouTube video. Um, like today I'm just doing a live podcast interview with Nick page and it'll be on YouTube live and then I'll post on a video later and I'll use it on the podcast as well. So that's killing two birds with one stone, getting that done. I'll chop that conversation up into forms of content that are going to help people and add value to them, post those on Instagram as reels. And I'm basically done for the entire four days. So I'm doing these things in a way that number one, I've learned the hard way how to do that. But number two, doing it in a way that that makes sense for me in the two days that I actually have to work right now. Mm -hmm. I'll hopefully in the future, um, if we, you know, she just got into a preschool. So hopefully in August, I may have like a few more hours per week that I'll be able to, you know, do some more work. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's hard. Like people with kids. People with kids who are like really doing a lot with their photography or with their small business, even if it's not photography, they are incredible human beings because it's so much work and you get like an hour to yourself a day and you just want to lay down and die to the world for an hour and then (laughs) revive yourself. But I'm like, you know, this is my hour where I can actually produce content and and do my business too. It's it's just yes. crazy. Yeah, it really is. I mean, uh, I don't, so my I said my daughter's three and a half. I don't know how old yours is. I'm guessing it's a, she's around the same age. She she's almost two. Okay, yeah. So and and Maya is still napping, and I'm like, mm. thank. God, you know, like I don't, I am yeah. dreading the time when the nap goes away because like you said, it's that two, you know, hour period or so where you can get something done. But I find that it's hard to do the context switching, you know, like being in mom mode and dealing with a toddler all morning and then trying to go switch brains and become creative and inspirational and, or, you know, responding to a whole bunch of emails or whatever. I'm so glad you said that sometimes it, you just want to lie down and be dead to the world for an hour <laughs> because I totally get that. Like I kind of need that downtime to be like, okay, phew. Yes, this yeah. is what I wanted to get done today. And Absolutely. And and that's totally fine. Like I, I talked to, uh, I've had this exact same conversation with Eric Bennett and Sean Bagshaw and Eric, I think his son is a little bit younger than my daughter. But I was just like, man, do you like, can you switch back and forth and do this like back and forth during the entire day? And he was like, no, I, if I'm dad mode, I'm dad mode. And if I'm work mode, I'm work mode. Um, And then Sean's advice for me was, look, the places you want to go and the podcasts weekly, if you miss a week, that's fine. Your daughter is only going to be this young right now. Yep. Yeah. It's a very, very good point. I mean, yeah, those are not, not replaceable years that you can get back. So these are so many different types of hats you have to be wearing in your business. You're a content creator, you're editing audio, you're editing video, you're editing photos, you're running a business. Do you ever get lonely, you know, working off for yourself? So I, that's a complicated question because 
I do. I get lonely like where I live and the geography aspect of it because I'm like in my home all day trying to do my business and my photography business. And we don't have like a ton of friends where we live and like all the photographers, it seems are out West. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it can be kind of difficult to feel like I'm connected to any circles, but I was actually talking to uh, Sarah Marino about this when we were in the Smokies this spring. And I was like, you know, coming out here in the East, like, Now you see not a lot of people are out here shooting and you don't run into people on the trails that much. And she was like, you may think that, but like really people out West don't run into each other that often. So I think this is kind of like a grass is greener on the other side thing. And that helped me a lot uh, understand that I was, I was looking at it to say like, they must have it so great over there in the West because they have like all these friendships. They're all going out to shoot together. And that just wasn't the reality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get, I get more lonely being a dad than anything else because I, I keep my daughter three days a week. I take her to, and that's not like a badge of honor or anything. This is just what I do. And mm-hmm. I take her to, gymnastics. I take her to story time at the library. I take her to, you know, other fun stuff that's happening around town. And it's literally like me and 20 moms. And I'm just like, (laughs) I'm just like, this is kind of isolating. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, we're talking about kids and and all that. But that's 30 seconds of it. The rest of the stuff they're talking about, like, when they're trying to get pregnant again or their C-section scar. And I'm like, I I cannot add anything to this conversation. So I just like sit there. Um, Uh, Yeah. So I get more lonely being a dad than I do being a photographer. (laughs) And and that honestly surprises me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so interesting. And I get it. I get it. I work from home too. And so, you know, sometimes I never leave our property and, right, uh, yeah. and it does feel weird being like, oh gosh, you know, our, our mailbox is actually not at the end of our driveway. It's like a mile and a half away. And, and so that's, you know, just to go get the mail requires leaving the house, which is a good thing sometimes. It <laughs> forces like, oh, you to do yes. it. Yes. Oh, see some neighbors. <laughs> there are people in this world. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. We, yeah, our mailbox is down the street. And like the community mailbox things. Yes. Um, yeah. So that that's always good uh, to get out there and and actually see. I'll, I'll honestly, when I'm feeling that way, I'll just take my daughter to Target and put her in the cart. And they're probably like, here's that guy who comes to Target and never <laughs> buys anything. And we'll just walk around. And it's the best because I'm an introvert. So I'm like, okay. I can just walk around Target, but I'm not obligated to talk in- to anybody. But now right. I feel social because I'm out in public and right. <laughs> we walk around for like 15 minutes and I'm like, OK, let's go back home. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the things we do, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, just to wrap up on the business side of things, do you have any advice for people who are interested in transitioning to full time photography? You know. Should they take the leap? Should they not? What what should they consider before doing so? 
consider communication with your partner. Number one, be on the same page about it. If you don't have a partner, then you don't have to worry about that part. Uh, but I would say number one, that number two, and, and this is a really big one. And you, you and your partner will probably talk about this. If, if you bring this up, where's the money going to come from? I know so many photographers are like, well, I don't like to talk about money or, you know, I don't like the business part of it. Well, the money has to come from somewhere. So you have to figure out different ways to make money and different income streams that you can rely on because this market changes so quickly that you can't rely on just one stream of income because it will dry up and that time will come. It may pick up a little bit more later again, but you have to have those other streams coming in that allow you to stay afloat, I should say, for the long term. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I would say really have six months of income saved up that you can live off of. And then once you're able to do that, and once you kind of have this recognition, um, you're able to do that. You, you've been doing it on the side for a little while and you know the ins and outs of the business. You are connected in the community. I'd say then you can try to make the jump. But you have to know when you make that jump, it gets even harder because now all of your income is reliant on that. And you do it, it doesn't matter if you don't like the business side of it. You have to understand the business side of it because the money mm-hmm. does have to come from somewhere. And that's just the hard truth about it is that it changes fast. Your income dries up in certain places and you kind of have to scramble sometimes to figure it out. Um, but you have some years are great. Some years are not so great. So you have to be really good at planning and saving and budgeting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Have you found that once you decided to go professional and start your photography business that it sort of impacted your creativity and, and how much photography you actually got to do? Um, in terms of how much I was actually able to do, it was a little shocking because I really, I don't go and shoot that much. I'll, I'll go here and there to do, like a video or something, or just to, you know, spend the morning out of the house. But I honestly, I go shooting like maybe between six and eight times a year, which isn't that much. Um, so you, you, that, that brings up a great point too, is, is that when you do go pro, you may be going out and shooting more, but you're probably photography itself and the creative photography is still going to be your part-time job. And that, that that for me was, was a big realization. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So let's talk about your photography and, and your creative process. How do you approach compositions and, and when you're out in the field, are there certain types of compositional elements that tend to draw your eye? I do a lot with, lines um and i know that lines are big with like leading lines and wide angle lenses but i like to transition those to telephoto as well so that's Mm -hmm. the first thing that i always look for when i do 
get into the field and look at a scene is, is what lines are here? What can I play with? And that could be, yes, leading lines, but that could also be horizontal lines that are going across the frame and have this really unique flow to them that's in the foreground. And then the background has like mountains or trees or something that has a a mirrored shape to them. So I'll always look at just lines and how those lines flow within the frame. And visual flows is big for that too, because you always want the viewer's eye to be looping kind of cyclically through your composition to get them to stay, to explore not only your primary subject, but your secondary subject, your tertiary subject, all these things that you've put the work into to, to construct this composition. So it's almost for me like playing a game of where's Waldo. I'm trying to mm-hmm. include all these little subjects within the frame for mm-hmm. people to find and be like, huh, that's a really interesting like thing to include in there. And sometimes it's obvious and, and sometimes it's not so obvious. So I, when I first started, I wasn't doing that and I was really struggling with compositions and visual flow and couldn't understand why I wasn't really loving my photography that much and was just like, eh, there's a cool photo, but, but what else? Uh, that's pretty much all it was. And then when I started looking for these things like visual flow and, and the, even the tertiary subjects, adding those in and hiding them within the frame, sometimes my shooting really slowed down. Uh, mm-hmm. and I became much more of like the film photographer who started And I started taking way fewer photos, but they were much more thoughtful photos. And they were like predicting what could happen or what would be cool if, say, you know, fog rolled into this valley. Or what if the light kind of dappled through the clouds and hit this part of the frame and and sitting there and waiting on those things rather than being this you know, Usain Bolt of photography and just clicking a bunch of photos in a location and leaving, um, sitting and waiting has has become kind of my bread and butter in approaching photography and compositions and, um, constructing a photograph. And, and I think that's, that's one thing visual flow for me is one thing that I see a lot of people could improve upon. Um, and that that's like people in workshops because you say visual flow and they say, well, what do you mean visual mm-hmm. flow? And you yeah. kind of have to explain it and go through that motion. Um, I think the more people start to wonder about visual flow and how somebody will interpret an image, uh, I think the more thoughtful your photographs will be. And, and that, it, that took me 11 years to figure out. So it's mm-hmm. not like something that I, quit my day job and was like, well, I'm going to visual flow. Here we go. Right. Um, it took me a long time to figure that out and, yeah. and a lot of really bad photos too. Yeah. It's complicated. It's hard. And, and it's kind of like when it works, you know, it works. And when mm-hmm. it doesn't, it's kind of hard to explain sometimes why. And yeah, I agree. It's definitely um, an elusive concept, but, but so important to creating impactful images yeah, so I totally get that. So, so you've talked about getting into the creative flow on your drive out, and and then now we're talking about compositionally the visual flow. When you're out in the field, do you 
know when you're getting into that creative flow or is it something that just kind of happens once you you start composing? Are you, do you have a deliberate process for that as well? I think that once it used to be, once I was getting into it, I didn't notice it until after the whole experience. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people, maybe they like look back on a morning that they went to shoot and they were like, wow, that was really serene. That was peaceful. I was in the zone. Um, here are like five keeper photos out of one morning. And my, my kind of, my kind of thought process and, and what I wanted to explore was how do I make that happen more? And it not only improved and, and that, that was a very hard process and a lot like I probably went two or three years without getting any photos that I was really proud of. And once I was able to say, okay, these are the practices that I'm going to take to get myself into that flow state, then it started happening more and more. And, and now if I go in the field by myself, it, this, I can't really do this with other people. If mm-hmm. I go by myself, I'm like in it, I step out of the car and I'm in it. Um, yeah. everything it's like athletes talk about everything melts away. You just, this is what you do. You just hit that winning shot and, and that's it. And I'm not saying all my photos are winning shots cause they definitely are not, but it's the experience is that winning shot, like getting out, being in the flow, having that good morning out, remembering why you loved photography in the first place. That's, that's part of it too. It's not just seeking out that one photo that could be, you know, an amazing photo to share on, on social media. It's the whole experience in and of itself. And now it's like, I'm ha- it's probably 60, 40. I'm having that experience 60% of the time, 40% not. And, and I think the more that you find those practices and the more that you find abilities to be able to put yourself in that situation. If you keep doing that, the higher percentage of you just like fall right into it and, and get going right out of the car. And I think that those practices can really help a lot of people. And that has become kind of the thesis of my entire photography business, because everybody says like, set yourself apart, find something that makes you different. And I didn't know what that was until I started talking about flow induction, uh, adding how to add emotion to your photos, using your past experiences to, to amplify those using the editing process and the tools to amplify your infield experiences. And people were like, tell me more about that. Or they would share a story from their own experience. And that was the, the, tipping point for me. I was like, this, this is it. This is what I understand. I understand emotion. I understand personality types. I understand creative flow. Uh, I understand what it feels like and the practices that I use to do it. Now this is my business. And this Mm -hmm. is like what I do as a photographer. Um, so if I can help somebody figure that out for themselves, I can help somebody be a much happier photographer. And that's what I want my photography business to be. Nice. Yeah, that's great. 
So what, what would you say that your photography says about you? Ooh, that is a great question. Psychotic, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not. Maybe, maybe, uh, bipolar. Cause like, look, I, I use emotion so much. Like I'll take photos that are really bright and like neon and vibrant. And then I'll take a photo the next day and it's like dark and has crazy like cloud vignetting in it and dodging and burning and really just high contrast storm clouds and stuff like this. So really, I I think, I think a a nice way to say like psychotic or bipolar is I really understand what I'm feeling in the moment. And that, that can be really hard to do when you're doing something like I like to do grand landscapes. You know, everybody says you have to have the right conditions to do that, but you really don't. You can find certain parts of the grand landscape that speak to you. And that could be getting out a telephoto lens and secluding part of it out and and getting a little bit more abstract. But really those, those areas that speak to me most are the big grand vistas. And then I'll whittle it down to what am I feeling in this moment and what subject within this grand space kind of speaks to that. And Mm -hmm. if it is, you know, a happy sunrise, it's pretty easy to do. But if I'm, you know, really like angry and, and every emotion can add value to your life and has a positivity to it. If I'm angry, like, why am I angry and how do I express that through my photography and how can the, the, the post feeling, uh, help me kind of to get over like what we see as the quote unquote negative side of angry, which is a bad mood or, you know, uh, how do I get back to this even keel, you know, no positive or negative, but just kind of this neutral state. So I would say that my photography would say that I understand my emotions or that's what I would hope that it would say. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really great. I, as somebody who, um, I tend to hide my emotions, (laughs) it's Mm. really inspirational to hear you talk about that and how to, you know, really embrace any of the emotions that you're feeling as, as a good experience, no matter what it is and just let yourself go through it. Well, I mean, they all, I, they all have, they all can have a positive outcome, right? Anger mm-hmm. can go really south really fast, but anger can also stir you to, you know, take the lead in a uh, petition that you feel very strongly about. It can force you to take mm-hmm. action. Yeah. Sadness can put you into a depression, but it can also make you say, hey, I'm feeling sad because I really miss this person. That means that they mean a lot to me. And that strengthens your bond to that person and makes you want to call them more, spend more time with them. So every emotion can have a a negative and a positive outcome to it. It's just how you dance around those and figure them out and sit with them to figure out why you are feeling that emotion is, is probably the strongest practice that you could do uh, if you are confused about what 
emotion or feeling that you're actually feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that introspection. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Let's do it. All right. Do you have any sound effects? No, but I wish I did. <laughs> do you? Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So waterfalls or streams? Waterfalls. Yes. Uh, what's one piece of gear that never leaves your camera bag that's not photography related? Instant coffee. Nice. Any particular kind? No. <laughs> no, not picky. <laughs> no, not picky. It's just got to get the job done. Yes. <laughs> in your opinion, what's the best light to photograph in? Clouds, dark light. Mm, nice. Why photography? Helps me express myself. Uh, and it's a form of art therapy for me. Nice. What's one piece of advice you would give to a younger version of yourself? Oh, in the words of the great theologian, Michael Scott, don't be such an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I love The Office. It's one of my favorite shows. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Uh, What's something that people would be surprised to learn about you? Oh, man, that that's a really good one. Um, let's see. I love Taylor Swift. That might be a good right. one. <laughs> yeah, that is a good one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, final question. What does connecting with nature mean to you? Connecting with nature for me means to reconnect with kind of the birth of everything and just understand where everything initially came from. Nice. Excellent. I have to say, I think you've won our lightning round. Uh, no one has ever gone through it actually at a lightning pace. So good job. Ooh, yes. <laughs> yes. It, how, how fast was it? Was that like 30 seconds? Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll set the bar high. 30 That's seconds right. if anyone wants to try to beat that. Exactly. You know, it's the, the new record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, David, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and share all your thoughts with our, our listeners. If people wanted to learn more about your photography and check out your podcast and YouTube channel, what's the best way for them to, to find all that? They can go to my website. It's davidjohnstonart.com. And my podcast is there. Links to socials is there. And um, I do give you, I have a free compositions and uh, photography handbook that you can download by joining the email list. Um, That's like a six video course, six videos, video course. And the handbook is about 126 pages, I think. Nice. Um, So it's a, it's a lot of resources, but um, you know, I think that my website is probably the best place to go to. uh, And we started, sharing a lot of information on Instagram, getting away from like the personal posts and putting a lot more energy into how you can get better as a photographer. So definitely go there and follow us. And uh, if you just go to YouTube and search David Johnston photography, I should come up. I should probably know that a lot better, but I should. <laughs> yes, I, I wouldn't imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll also include all the links in the show notes so it'll be easy for people to find. So Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you again, David. This has been great. No, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's an honor, really. 
All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Johnston. And again, you can find out more about his photography and get links to his tutorials and podcasts on his website at davidjohnstonart.com. And be sure to check out his work on Instagram and YouTube as well. Again, thank you, David, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. All of the links and resources mentioned today are in the show notes at outdoorphotographypodcast.com slash 71. And while you're there, if you're enjoying the podcast, you can show your support by leaving a radiant review or buying me a coffee, which is kind of like a podcast tip jar, or you can simply share the podcast with someone who you think would like it with just one click. And thank you to everyone who has shown their support so far. I really, really appreciate it. And I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll share a practical photography tip and or answer your submitted questions. So if you have a question or a topic you'd like to suggest for a future Tidbit Tuesday, you can record your message or contact me on the website at outdoorphotographypodcast.com. And until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.